Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter over at NBC in Atlanta. Exciting times here. The blog is back after a three-month hiatus. The podcast is hitting full speed and we are steamrolling towards a very exciting weekend in June. The NPPA Southeast Storytelling Workshop in Atlanta. I'm co-hosting it with photojournalist John Kirtley. We're bringing in some of the best local TV journalists in the country as our speakers. And every two weeks, I'll be interviewing one of those speakers here on the podcast. Now, before we get to today's guest, if you haven't registered already, you can do so by going to our website for this blog, tellingthestoryblog.com, and clicking on the show notes for this podcast. Now... On to the matter at hand. My guest is one of the top investigative reporters in the country. He's won boatloads of awards, including the Society of Professional Journalists Sigma Delta Chi Award and a National Edward R. Murrow Award. He is a native Coloradan working in his home state at KUSA-TV in Denver. Chris Vanderveen, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, I'm excited for this, and I'm excited for June when that comes along. It's going to be great. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you coming down to Atlanta, and I'm going to ask you the question that I'm asking every guest. Uh, What made you want to do it? What made you say yes? Well, I think what's interesting is that I've been a a general assignment reporter at KUSA for, uh, well, since 2002. And just within the last two years, I switched over to our investigative unit. And um, it's been sort of a... uh, it's, It's really been a refreshing change for me and um, I feel like I'm still getting my feet wet with investigative journalism. Uh, we've done some stuff I'm awfully proud of. Uh, we've done some stuff that uh, has changed some laws. And um, I'm looking forward to as we continue to work along with this stuff I'm working on. I was just working on a story about 10 minutes ago right before he called. Uh, hopefully he's going to get some legs, too. I can't say too much about it because it's we're in the world <laughs> of investigative journalism. But um, it's good stuff. That's awesome. Uh and, and I did want to ask you about that because you mentioned changing laws with some of the work you've done. And I think so many who are in this field feel jaded as to what they can accomplish. They feel cynical about the power of this profession and the power of media. You're a shining example of someone who's had some success in actually really affecting change. Talk a little just about some of the highlights for you as an investigative reporter and as a general assignment. Well, I really started um, when I switched over to investigating unit. One of the first things we did here in our, it's called Nine Wants to Know as our investigative unit here, is that we started looking at uh, hit and runs in the city and county of Denver and in the Colorado area. And we realized that um, the police department wasn't having nearly enough time to investigate these things because of a a really shortened uh, statute of limitations on prosecutions here in Colorado. And so we talked about that. And ended up extending the statute of limitations uh, for fatal hit and runs in the state of Colorado. And since then, um, that's one, and it's it's a, it's a modest change. Um, but last year, we started doing something totally different on uh, on actually civilian helicopter fuel tanks. And if you if you know much about civilian helicopter fuel tanks, one, they don't necessarily make for great television stories. But <laughs> in this, at the same time, we had a fatal crash here in Colorado last summer of a flight for life helicopter that really um, it exploded into a ball of flames. And I wanted to know why that was. And, and the more and more work we did on that, we discovered that basically 85% of the helicopters in the air today, uh, civilian helicopters in the air today have fuel systems that uh, even the federal government would admit are antiquated. Uh, the fuel system in the helicopter that crashed in uh, Frisco, Colorado 
was basically the same type of fuel system that was certified by the FAA in 1977, even though the helicopter was brand new. There's a long reason for that. But at the end of the day, the helicopter crashed. It was a survivable crash. People lived on board the helicopter. Yet when about three seconds after it crashed, fuel started to pour out of the fuel tank. And um, about six seconds, there was an ignition source and it just went up. And, and to date, that crash was in July. To date, there is still an individual flight nurse um, who is still in the hospital with critical burns uh, this many months afterwards. And because of that, we've been able to sort of bring a lot of attention to a national level. And there's now been uh, uh, congressional legislation that's been introduced to get the FAA to speed up the process to change all this. And it's good stuff. And, and we're sort of hopefully bringing some change around the country as well. And you mentioned uh, that you've really just started uh, being on the investigative team in the last few years. Has that been just a huge jump for you in terms of the exposure that you're getting for these stories and the the amount of change that you're able to affect? It, it is. And, I, you know, it's one of the, you know, everybody looks at the investi- at their investigative units and their stations and they're like, boy, they get an awful lot of money. They get a ton of time. What are they doing? Why are they just sort of looking on Facebook their entire time while they're working? That's <laughs> not true. Hopefully, ideally, we're putting a, together a lot of work. And that was a database heavy uh, investigation with helicopter fuel tanks. We looked at helicopter fuel crash, uh, helicopter crashes around the country uh, for the last 15 years and sort of noticed the trend in all of that. They're labor intensive. They're, it's a lot of work, um, but you get the time to do it. And I really, really appreciate that. I still feel like I'm there's great investigative reporters around the country. I don't even come close to. Um, mm-hmm. I really feel like I'm getting my feet wet in that. But I think the idea, the hope is, is that you can bring sort of more of a storytelling, writing technique to investigative journalism. Um, and hopefully that's what I can accomplish as the years go by. I still, again, I still feel like I'm getting my feet wet and I have a ton to learn. And I think that's, you, you hit on the big point about investigative reports, that they are, I think, regarded in the business as the toughest types of stories to tell well on television. There are a lot of great researchers. There are a lot of great diggers for information, but it's rare to see that combined with great storytelling on the investigative side. Well, I I guess before we dive into how you do it, do you agree with that assessment? Do you feel like that's typically the case? Absolutely. And I think it's the biggest challenge in investigative journalism is that there are there are some of the greatest researchers in the country that work in investigative journalism and they can get information, the kind of information that no one else can get. Um, and what I noticed about investigative journalism is that we can spend months working on a story and we spend uh, precious little time actually writing the story and putting it together. And I think it's a real weakness of uh, we can spend you know, four or five months putting a story together and then we write it in a day and a half. And sometimes it shows. Sometimes it's sloppy. Sometimes we're not putting together stories in a cohesive way because the biggest problem with these type of stories is that we, we spend so much time on them that we know them backwards and forwards, but the audience doesn't. So how do you tell it in a way on television that makes sense, that's compelling, and they don't get lost in the minutia of the story? And that's the biggest challenge, I think, for writing for investigative reports. And, you know, you did a piece uh, this past month, or maybe it was February, about uh, hospitals that would charge $359 for a bag of salt water, and your medical expert was able to find these bags online for $3. It was a terrific piece, and I watched it again this evening 
before this conversation. I recommend anybody listening to this to uh, check out the link in the show notes. We'll have that for you if you want to watch the piece. And it really speaks to what you're talking about because I was so impressed with which with the clarity with which you told that story. Everything was very easy to follow, which is not often the case. I've seen many investigative pieces get wallowed down in, in you know, just tons of emails and paperwork and documents, figures flying by, and it's very difficult to digest, especially, as you said, for someone who is not immediately familiar with the topic, as the reporter is. Talk about, uh, with this piece about the hospitals, what did you do specifically to make that easier to digest for your viewers? Well, in- intentionally, we picked saline bags because it was something that was easily digestible. It was easy to understand. People, I mean, most people have seen a saline bag. At the end of the day, saline is salt water. That's all it is. Now, it's put together in a, in a way that's clean. It's not going to infect anybody. It's administered by professionals. But at the end of the day, it's tangible. It's easy to understand. And we kept on getting, we had done some previous stories back in November on freestanding emergency rooms in Colorado. And so we were asking a lot of people to bring in, send in their bills. And what I noticed was, is that people were getting charged an awful lot of money for saline. And the question was, why is that happening? So everybody knows healthcare is expensive. Um, There's no debate about that. But why is some of it so expensive? And one of the things I noticed is that bills are devilishly difficult to understand. If you've gone through a surgery, you know precisely what I'm talking about. Bills, explanation of benefits, everything's confusing. Most people in the country have no idea what type of insurance they have. But at the same time, we fundamentally change in this country how we pay for medicine because, uh, as you know, working for the company that we both do, they've changed our health insurance plans. Most of us are now on high deductible health care plans, which most of the country is now. And because of that, we're responsible for $1,500, $2,000, $3,000, $5,000. And now we're beginning to ask hospitals, this is the beauty of the whole thing, is we're asking hospitals, well, why are you billing me $400, $350 for a bag of saline? And what's interesting is that the hospitals are having a really hard time explaining that. Now, there may be some valid reasons as to why they're doing that, but they have a really hard time explaining that. And I think they owe it to their customers to do a better job of explaining that. So that's what we were trying to do in that story. And and let me just uh, follow up on one thing you said there, and let me know if I'm getting this wrong, but it sounds like you really could have taken on any of the items in a typical medical bill, that there are any number of items that are probably much, much cheaper, uh, dozens of times cheaper to find online for just well, uh, you for can, starters. You can, but, do as- you can do aspirin. You, you can do everything right. cheapest from a, a pill of aspirin, of which if you look on their bill, it's they'll, they'll bill you an awful lot of money for, uh, to um, a CAT scan, which – in Colorado, for example, we've seen bills that run anywhere from $2,000 to $8,000. That's a huge cost variation. And yeah. so why is that? But CAT scans, nobody really knows what a CAT scan might cost. Um, you but know, everybody knows home, what a bag of saline everyone, is. A bag of saline that you can get online that's a clean bag of saline, hospital-grade grade bag of saline, for like 2 bucks. And so we wanted to know why that was. And, you know, I don't think – I don't know if the story fully answered it. But that wasn't necessarily the goal. The goal was to say, look, this is what you're billing people. Why are you billing it this way? And can you do a better job of explaining it? You also did a really nice job in that piece with something that I I feel like always stymies so many journalists, which is they reach out to the authority for comment. 
no one wants to do an interview, so you get the official statement, and it's usually laughably silly in terms of what the statement actually says and, and the point they're trying to make. It's usually complete jargon, and it is completely unrelated and irrelevant to the story at hand. And you did a very nice job of almost lampooning that in your story where you were doing a stand-up and you kind of stood idly by while the statement appeared on the screen next to you. And, you know, you looked peeved just having to stand there and look at that for that long. You know, it's it's one of those things that I'm a big believer in trying to experiment. And sometimes when you experiment, you get things right. And sometimes when you experiment, you get things wrong. I, I bet you there's going to be some people who watch that after watching all this and they'll say, I didn't get it. And I've heard from people and I don't know if we made the right decision on that, but I'm glad that we tried something different. And, um, and at the same time, it's, it, it, you're trying to bring some attention to the absurdity of the moment. Um, the, the lack of, I mean, in Colorado, the, the Colorado hospital association, which is the, uh, essentially the lobbying group for all of hospitals in the state of Colorado, they wouldn't go on record and say, why do hospitals bill three hundred dollars? A standard industry practice. The hospitals around the state, hospitals around the country, do it. And the main lobbying group, in the state of Colorado, doesn't want to go on camera and explain that. I find that curious. <laughs> this is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Chris Vanderveen, award-winning investigative reporter for KUSA in Denver, and a speaker at this June's NPPA Southeast Storytelling Workshop in Atlanta. Chris. Uh, when we talk about investigative reporting and then storytelling within that, you mentioned that a lot of it comes down to so often reporters dig and dig into the story and then spend far less time on the crafting and writing of that story. What are some of the techniques that you've taken uh, from the general assignment world and, and your background as a storyteller and a really good one at that to the investigative side to try to make those stories a little more palatable? I think the always the goal, and this is I, I hope it's I, I believe I want to believe it's the same whether you're writing a feature or you're writing an investigative piece. Um, I always try to get something that's relatable and understandable to the audience, and sort of let me I help you identify what the problem is, what the conflict is, what is going on, and we try to do that in feature stories. And then you, if you can bring that to investigative, I think you can bring some clarity. So I try to find a theme uh, in every story. Um, we joke about it here at Nine News, and sometimes it's overused, and I think I overuse the heck out of it. Um, we call them lifeisms. <laughs> you know, you're like, you never <laughs> notice, blah, blah, blah. Our life is really hard. And, and those kind of, those sort of grandiose statements at the beginning of the story. I've done a few of those on no, occasion, and yes. Sometimes it really works, and then sometimes, I, you know, I don't know. But you have to be able to, to back a, it up. That's the key. You have to be theme. able to back it up. Yeah. Find a theme that people can relate with. And then most importantly, I think, um, find a character. Find somebody that people can feel empathy for, sympathy for, that they can relate to. And then get to – this is the thing that I think I've learned the most in investigative journalism is that I would waste an awful lot of time in the first 30 seconds of a story writing really sort of flowery lines, and I thought it was great, great stuff. And then you realize, well, you're wasting 30 seconds of, of the audience's time, so why not get to the conflict sooner? And I think that's what's really benefited me to go into investigative is that now I at least try to get to that conflict within the first you know, 15, 20 seconds 
um, to let the audience know, okay, here's the problem. Here's a person that you can identify with and then use that as a springboard to possibly talk about something that's much more complex, like the cost of healthcare, for example. And I think with features too, that philosophy actually pretty much holds true too. I, I you know, you see some features every now and then where it takes a minute, minute and a half before you really have any idea of what's going on or why you're supposed to be interested in the story. And I always feel like those tend to drag a lot more than the ones that within the first 15, 20 seconds introduce you to whoever the subject is of the story. We've all, Matt, I've done it so much. And I'll like walk, look back on my stories that I wrote like five years ago. And I'm like, what was I thinking? And <laughs> at the time you thought they were great. You thought there was, oh, these are wonderful stories. And, and I, I really wrote the first line. I'm, I'm a big believer in the first line, but um, I wrote the first and second line really, really well. And then you watch it again and you're like, I'm just wasting time with how thinking how great of a writer I am and then realizing, ah, that stinks. It's not very good. And it's hard. I think you grow, you continually grow as a writer and stuff that was good three or four years ago. You're like, eh, you know, maybe maybe it's not so good anymore. <laughs> so would you say as far as your own career arc that you started as a storyteller and picked up the investigative skills or yeah. was it both at the same time, other way around? No, I, I think, I mean, I came here to KUSA in 2002 and uh, I honestly, I, I didn't, I didn't really even know the fundamentals of storytelling. I think I was sort of starting to get at it. Um, I didn't really have any great mentors. Um, I, I, I didn't even know when I first came here. I remember one of the photojournalists said to me, they go, Chris, we got to get some moments in the story. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what a moment was. And <laughs> And so as I, you know, as I can, and, and the photographers we have here are just awesome and amazing. There's so many good ones that have come through here and I've worked with and, and they sort of really taught me to sort of capture the moment, uh, look for that. And I really sort of started to really sort of grow as a writer with their help. Um, and then I got comfortable with, you know, feature stories and then trying to apply that to general news. Um, but I never really before two years ago, really looked at anything with an investigative bent to it. Um, and, and that's why I say I'm still getting my feet wet and I'm still learning because it's a really challenging world. And there's so many really, really amazing investigative reporters out there. And it's funny when you, you sort of live and thrive in the world of MPPA, um, you get to know all of the names in MPPA. And these, there's amazing you know, reporters and photographers that work for MPPA. But what I didn't know was a lot of the great, amazing talent that works in investigative. And, it, and it, they don't necessarily sort of come about as sort of stereotypical, great MPPA kind of writers and, and photographers, but their work is fantastic. And so I hope, you know, if anybody watching this, you know, find the investigative reporter in your state, in your market or around the country. There's so many good ones and and watch them, too, because there can be a real benefit in learning from them as well, because they'll get to the point quicker. They'll find the conflict really fast. And, and the really good ones make a clarity, a, a story that at the end you're watching it, you're mad, you're pissed and you want to change the world because of what they exposed. And that's a real gift. And it's they're do two different worlds. I'm I'm trying to hope I'm hoping to kind of bring them together a little bit. Yeah. But you know, it's it's a challenge. And I think 
when you talk about MPPA storytelling, that sometimes differs between what you see on an investigative level. I mean, even a lot of the stuff that you're doing, there's a lot of graphics, there's a lot of playing around with effects, the occasional music pop every now and then that maybe would be frowned upon perhaps in the more traditional circles. But I feel like when you have a certain creative license, if you use it artfully and skillfully and do it in the service of the story, you're generally pretty safe. And ethically, too. I mean, you don't... Yes. Everything that we do, I mean, whether it be a graphic, uh, a a nap pop, um, a a sound bite, as long as it captures the reality of the story and doesn't change or try to add to the to the story tell it truthfully as much as you can and that yeah there are different techniques in investigative um that we're, we're definitely have more graphics um which i've i've learned to be okay with i hated graphics five years ago i think we we sort of underestimate the power of graphics sometimes um and you know there's 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 parts of both worlds that are really, really valuable. And I, I, I still love what the MPPA does and what the MPPA stands for. <clears throat> but um, I would caution people just sort of assuming that the MPPA only stands for sort of flowery language and nat sound and great pictures. At the end of the day, all we're trying to do, whether we're investigative or sort of storytelling, is that we're just trying to tell a story that is good, that people understand, um, and that is truthful to the reality of the story. That's a really good point, and that's partially why we're so happy to have you down at the workshop in June. Brendan Keefe, another uh, great investigative reporter who works out of my station in Atlanta, WXIA, he does stuff that would be <laughs> that would be uh, you know not considered traditional at all. But he's a tremendous storyteller. It's beautiful stuff, though. If, if and yes. I was, Brendan's stuff uh, and his video, and he shoots all his own stuff. Um, it's remarkable and it's, it is, he captures really powerful images, um, with video as well. And it's different, but at the end of the day, I still think, and Matt, you see it all the time. It's still, it's still kind of the same. I mean, it's, it's, there's a, there's a variation to it. Um, but it's, it, at the end of the day, you watch a story, his story, and you understand where he's going and, um, it's visually impressive. Um, that, that's that's all we can hope for in this business. Yeah, and I think the thing I appreciate most about his work is he does, and I've told him this, he does a really great job of cutting through, cutting through the wall that separates the reporter and the viewer, and he really yeah. has a way of making you feel like you're in the story with him. And I think you know the best reporters, investigative feature and otherwise, are able to do that with some kind of regularity. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because there's there's always a, uh, I, I was always taught here that um, particularly sort of an MPPA heavy station that the reporter just stands away from the story. Don't interject yourself into the story. And I think that's true for most of the stuff that's a lot of the stuff that's done. But if you can be powerful as a presence, there's a real value in that. And um, I hope I've, I've sort of come 180 in that and sort of said, yeah, I think there's a value. I'm still not I'm not as comfortable as many investigative journalists are in sort of injecting myself in the story, but there's moments where I think it's, it's necessary and can be very valuable to the viewer to help them understand that you actually are, you know, demanding answers of people that absolutely should be answering your questions. It's always a very fun moment in this business when you've learned the rules enough to know when you can break them and when you can try to experiment off of them. And so I think you're, you make a really good point on that. 
This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He's Chris Vanderveen, KUSA investigative reporter and a speaker in Atlanta this June at the NPPA Southeast Storytelling Workshop. Check out the show notes for this podcast and register. We've got a tremendous lineup and uh, Chris, one of several just fantastic speakers that we can't wait to have. Chris, uh, before we let you go, I always like to use the last segment of the podcast as an advice section for younger reporters. And, you know, for you, you're someone who really does have the holy grail of positions that so many young reporters aspire to. They want to be on the I-team. They want to be getting to dig deep into those investigative pieces. So, first of all, take me back to your background. Uh, I've read your bio and heard a little bit about your story, but you've talked about how this wasn't anything you anticipated doing. Take me back into, uh, you know, 21-year-old Chris Vanderveen and what you were thinking about at that time. Well, I, I, my first job was um, I, I got a phone call from a general manager at a, a CBS affiliate in Casper, Wyoming, and said, hey, Chris, we could use you up a, here as a photographer. Um, and I said, you know, I, I, I really like to report to you as well. And then she said, oh, you'll, of course, you'll get a chance. And I, I, I asked my brother, who was also kind of in the business at the time, he goes, Chris, um, when you're in college uh, and you're getting out of college and somebody offers you a job, you don't say no. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I went up to Casper, Wyoming, worked, up, li- worked and lived there for two and a half years in market 190, whatever, and um, made a lot of mistakes, uh, did some decent things, uh, had a lot to learn. Uh, but it was, you know, when you when we were at a, it, the TV station I worked for, almost nobody watched. And uh, it had terrible ratings and uh, so you know i did the sports i was the worst wow. ever the first night the first night i was on uh for a sports cast at uh, at the te- at the television station i had to report on the rodeo that was in town i'm a <laughs> denver kid i've never i've never been to a rodeo and i'm having to report on a rodeo in the sports cast i'm sweating profusely um i have like a super heavy jacket on in the middle of summer <laughs> um, I looked like an idiot, and I remember the 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 um, the director came down. Oh, you there? Yes, yes. I think I just the, lost your video, but I got you right back. The uh, the the director came down and said, uh, uh, "Chris, have you ever seen the movie Broadcast News?" Uh, <laughs> and I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "Yeah, the guy is sweating." And I'm like, "Yeah, thanks, thanks for that." So <laughs> I got past that, went to Colorado Springs, worked there for three and a half years. Um, really got to sort of the, I, I, the news director there at the time was a, a, an individual by the name of Dan Dennison, who was a mountain bureau for KUSA, where I now work for for a number of years, and really sort of instilled in me this idea that like, you need to, you know, writing is valuable, photog- good photography is really, really valuable. And I still had a ton to learn. And then I came here, and as I said, I, I didn't, re- I, I, the first six months I worked at KUSA, I was convinced every day that I was going to get fired. I thought I'm terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and they hate me. And I always tell the story and there's, it's a photographer uh, by the name of Shane McEckern, who is an awesome photographer here at KOSA. He now works in Philly. And he, he said, he stopped me. Like he could see me like really worried about getting fired. He goes, he goes, Chris, they like you. They're going to keep you around. And it was the most refreshing sort of moment. It's one of those, yeah, everybody has those moments in their life where they're like, okay, maybe I can actually do this for a living. Yeah. And then, you know, worked here for 12 years, did the general assignment thing, worked every single story around here. I worked Columbine when I was in Colorado Springs. I worked the Aurora Theater shooting here. Um, I've worked the big stories here in Colorado. I love big story coverage. I love spot news. I miss that a little bit. And, and 
and you'll see me close to the desk sometimes when there's big spot news going on being mm. like, pick me, pick me. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then we just had an opening in our investigative unit and, uh, with the, the news director who hired me, um, who's not our news director at the time and now, but, um, she wasn't news director at the time. She's longtime news director here at KUSA, Patty Dennis. Mm. Um, she would, she's routinely told me, um, she goes, Chris, uh, when I decided to hire you as an investigative journalist, I did not think you were right for the job at all. And wow. She, and but she goes, we took a chance. You said some good things during the interview. We decided to take a chance. And I think I mean, hopefully she doesn't watch this and sort of say, no, Chris, you're wrong. But I think uh, I think she likes me, I guess. <laughs> um, and hopefully I'm doing an OK job. And um, I get to stay around for a little while longer. Oh, that's great. That's great. So for the younger journalists out there who want to get to that point. Is it a matter of grinding and grinding until you develop that reputation? Is yeah. there any shortcut that you can look back and say, oh, I wish I had done this earlier in my career? I, yeah, I, I think uh, be inquisitive. I mean, it's the most important thing for investigative journalism is, is never stop asking questions. That's never stop asking why. Um, because uh, sometimes, too many times, we sort of simply accept the answer that we're given from the official, from the politician, from whomever. Good investigative journalists sort of say, okay, maybe, but let me look elsewhere. Let me see if there's a real answer behind that. So a natural curiosity of wanting to sort of discover the truth because too many times, particularly in GA, and I, I was guilty of this too, we just don't have enough time. Yep. So we simply, the police department says, okay, that's, that's, that's what happened. I'm like, okay, we report that as truth. Um, the good GA reporters, I think, nowadays are the ones that say, OK, maybe I'll take that as the truth today. But tomorrow, as we go forward, I'm going to continue to ask that question. If you continue to ask questions, never stop asking why. Uh, those are the people that I think will have a real future in investigative journalism, because we need good investigative journalism right now, um, because I think the world demands it. That is such a good point about if you don't have the time that day, then keep it in mind for the next day. And I think that is the big challenge that every general assignment reporter, certainly every young reporter is going to face when they feel overwhelmed, particularly if they're a multimedia journalist doing them, doing it all themselves. They're going to feel a certain uh, just struggle with that. And that's the kind of thing that you have to keep asking those questions and keep moving a story and advancing it to the next day. You bring up a really good point. So the, the whole, we talked about the helicopter crash earlier. Everybody stopped covering that story. Nobody else was, was working on it. And I don't say that to boast. I just, it, it became a story that nobody sort of asked, well, why did that helicopter explode the way it did? It was nice for me because no one else was working on the story at the time. But it all started from a question of why did that happen? And the more you started to learn that it wasn't, it wasn't just this one helicopter that crashed and exploded into a ball of flames. Helicopters all around the country have been doing this for years. And uh, it started with that question, why? And then you start to, it's great when you start to peel back the layers of the onion. And it's really satisfying as a journalist when you start, okay, I could have taken the, well, it's just one crash um, story, but what if there's a story that has really national implications buried in there? And that's what's really, really cool about investigative journalism is that you find those answers that are sort of buried in there. And it's like there's this aha moment of like, I found it. I understand why this is going on. It's really satisfying as a, as a person, as a reporter. 
That's great. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm so excited that you're coming down to Atlanta in June for this workshop, and, and you're going to be great. We can't wait to to hear about this stuff and more, as you'll have a lot more time than 30 minutes to talk about investigative journalism. Oh, so. man, you're giving me 30, you're giving me more than 30. I can't talk. That's over. There's going to be the audience is going to be, like, bored. Like, well, Chris, stop talking. So hopefully, I'm, I'm kidding. Hopefully not. If you, you just rip me off the stage, Matt, if I do a terrible job. That's fair. Yeah, we've got the hook that we're ready to, to bring out for people if they need it. Um, Chris, I always, uh, like any good reporter, I always like to end with that famous question. We've touched on a lot, but is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? I just think it. I, I find this job fun again. Um, I love what I'm doing right now. And I think there was a time where if I was honest with myself a few years ago, I might not have said that. And life's too short to sort of continue to wallow in misery. And so find your, I mean, we all got in this business because we have a passion that we love to try to tell stories and make a difference. Uh, If it's not working for you at that moment or in that environment, change it up. Don't hesitate to sort of do something different because as news directors around the country will say, they will never punish you for trying to be different right now because everybody needs to be different. The same old stuff, the same things that we've been doing in journalism aren't working anymore. And so change it up, change your environment and be the sort of the, you know, the person that is, that creates your own fate. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. 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 No, it all came together at the end. I like that a lot. <laughs> that is some great advice, Chris. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me on the telling the story podcast. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. And the telling the story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is telling the Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. You can subscribe on Twitter and Facebook as well. Follow me there. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.